Welcome back to New Books in Latino Studies. I'm David James Gonzalez, the host of the channel, and today I'm speaking with Mario Jimenez Cifuentes, author of the brand new book, of Force and Fields, Mexican Labor in the Pacific Northwest, just released this month by Rutgers University Press. Dr. Cifuentes is an assistant professor of history at the University of California, Merced, where he teaches courses on immigration, labor, food, and music. Professor Cifuentes' research has focuses uh, has focused on comparative immigration and labor history and has been funded by the UC Humanities Research Institute and the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation. Hello, Mario, and welcome to New Books in Latino Studies. Hey, how are you doing? Doing great, and I'm glad to, that you're on with us. I've been excited to read your book since I was introduced to it uh, at uh, last year's um, Western History Association conference, so I'm glad, and it is my understanding that it was uh, just released this month in March, is that right? It came out on March 3rd, I believe. There we go. Great. Well, I was hoping you can begin our conversation today by telling us a little bit about your personal background and uh, your pathway to becoming a a professor of, of labor and immigration history. Um, my parents are uh, immigrant farm workers from Mexico, from uh, the state of Coahuila. Um, their families have been coming to the United States as farm workers. From what I can find, from as early as the 19, uh, 1940s, 1950s, my uh, my mom's grandfather, my mom's father was a bracero, uh, and they started coming to Oregon, Washington, Idaho, uh, 50 or 60 years ago. Uh, and so my parents doing the same thing. Uh, they came to Oregon, uh, where I was born. I was born in Napa, Idaho, uh, during, uh, one of their, you know, one of their, uh, treks up north. Um, I was pretty much raised in a migrant family until I was about 12, 13 years old. Uh, and then my parents got more steady jobs, uh, not, no longer in the field, uh, and grew up in, in the town called Ontario, Oregon, which is, on the border of Oregon and Idaho, out in eastern Oregon, a very rural community, um, farm working community, so like onions, potatoes, uh, sugar beets, things like that. Um, from there, you know, once we settled, I think I became sort of a much better student, got uh, much more uh, involved in, in sort of academics in that sense, and I wanted to go to college, and I used to hate working in the fields. I hated it. And my mom always used to say working in the fields, you better be reading. <laughs> so I think from right, I, I started to like read a lot and wanted to be, you know, wanting to go to school, wanting to go to college. Um, and from there, you know, it was sort of nobody in my family had gone to college before. And that was sort of new to me uh, and new to, you know, my, my, my family. Uh, but I did end up getting an academic scholarship to the University of Oregon. Mm-hmm. Uh, Oregon and Eugene. Uh, from there, uh, I, I, I stayed there to do a master's. I wasn't really kind of ready, I think, or even understood what it meant to be in graduate school. Right. And so master's was sort of a way of like kind of feeling it out and be like, okay, is this something that I want to do? Is this something that I'm good at? You know, and uh, after, even after my first semester of graduate school, I was, I was pretty convinced that this was something that I wanted to do. And and then I was pretty good at it, too. Um, and so from there, I did my master's at, at, at Oregon and then went to uh, Brown uh, University to do my Ph.D. Uh, with Matt Garcia. So I, I went to go work with Matt over there at Brown. 
And what was it that, uh, you know, essentially first put it in your mind to, uh, you know, not just pursue, you know, a PhD, but to actually, you know, become a, a historian and, uh, you know, scholar? Because, you know, when I was a kid, like I said, I began to read a lot. And by the time I was a teenager, you know, I had been picking up a lot of very political books. And um, I kind of, I blame Rage Against the Machine for this, right? Yeah. Because <laughs> as a kid, I was watching the TV one day and there was a video of, um, of a song called The People of the Sun. I don't know if you're familiar yes, with that. but I am. Uh-huh. This is a great video and it like keeps like, it's a lot of flashing images, and it's very busy, and, you know, there are pictures of stuff like three stars and the Mexican flag and indigenous people and all this stuff, and, and in my head, I, you know, I was like, who are these guys, and what are these white boys thinking about Mexico for, right? Right. And I didn't know Mexican by that time. I just right. associated, you know, with, like, heavy metal with, like, white kids, right? And so I was like, why are these white kids thinking about Mexico? I'm so confused by this. And so I went out, and I bought the album, um, and I don't know if you're noticed, but, in, but if you take that, the insert of of um, Evil Empire out, the, the insert is a picture of just books scattered on a table. Mm-hmm. And that table is like uh, Fanon, Che, and like all these kind of like post-colonial, like you know, books uh, about Lumumba and different people and I started to just devour this stuff and I was like reading it. I read Fanon the first time when I was 14 years old, the first time I read Fanon. And, you know, I didn't really understand what it was, but I knew that it was revolutionary. It was something that I really, like, spoke to me, right? Right. But even in all, right, there was very little about, like, Latinos, right? There was very little in that literature about what my experience was. And then what I did find was focused always on California and on Texas, right? Right. And so... And I just kept asking myself that question, you know, like, why are we here? Why are we here? Uh, how did we end up getting here? And at first it kind of started out as like a very esoteric question for me. I started reading a lot of like religious texts and philosophical texts. And I remember when I first got to the University of Oregon, uh, I was a religious studies major because mm-hmm. that was kind of how I was going to answer that question for myself. And I think that happens a lot with young people. It's like, um, it becomes a very internalized idea, right? Instead of thinking of these sort of socio-political, you know, uh, economic forces that put you where you're at, we tend to kind of like, when we're young, tend to look inwards, right? And that's right. what I was doing. I just study stuff. I was sort of trying to figure out this kind of esoteric question about why I was there. Um, and it wasn't until I met this, you know, great professor named uh, Daniel Goldrich at the University of Oregon, who was this kind of emeritus professor who did Latin American politics, who, you know, talked about NAFTA and these other things in a class that I started to think about, you know, that these were external forces that kind of brought my family to work in this, like, random place in the middle of the desert or, you know, of Eastern Oregon. Uh, and it just sort of kept, I kept wanting to try to answer that question. And even with that information, even with understanding how, you know, free trade works or all these other things, there was still very little available about why the Northwest, right? Why Ontario, Oregon? Why Hermiston, Oregon? Why Yakima, Washington? Why are the, why these different places? And so even when I got to school, 
I remember having this conversation with Matt Garcia, who was a professor at Oregon at the time, about whether or not I was going to go to graduate school. Uh, I had been very active as an organizer for Pekun, actually, as a student organizer for, for the Farm Workers Union in Oregon. I uh, had been very active on student in student politics and student activism uh, and on campus activism. And so there was this kind of moment where I was going to go to work for this um, this organization uh, that was sort of the anti-prison and part of the anti-prison movement. Mm-hmm. It was my senior year in college and I was sort of deciding what I was going to do. And Matt Garcia told me, he was like, are you going to, what are you going to do? Are you going to go to graduate school? Are you going to go take this job? And I was like, well, I don't know. I'm kind of in the air about all of this. And uh, he said to me, uh, you know, if you don't take this job, you know, working in this prison moratorium project or whatever, um, will somebody else do it? And I was like, yeah, I'm sure. There's plenty of people who are qualified and passionate about this subject that surely would do it. And then he goes, if nobody writes this book about farm workers in the Northwest, who's, you know, if you don't write this, who else is going to write it? Right, right. You know, and nobody, right? I mean, this has not been done before. And I didn't know a lot of people, you know, from my community that were going to college and that alone going to graduate school. And so that kind of like, that hit really close to home. I was 22 years old. I was, you know, trying to decide what I was going to do with my life. And uh, it just all made so much sense to me at that point, right? That, that what I was doing or what I could potentially do as a graduate student was a form of activism, a form of commitment to my community that I could show uh, in a way that perhaps other people couldn't. Right. I was like, what am I, what am I good at? You know, I'm a good, am I good at, I'm a good writer. I'm a good researcher. I can do this and I can write this book that would be something new. And, you know, and here we are, like, I mean, that was like 2000, 2002, you know, and it's, you know, 15, 16 years later. And finally it's been done. Finally. Right. Thanks for sharing that. That's uh, that's really neat to hear. You know the background of you know not just how you come to uh, the subject, but how you make that decision. And it's 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 always great to hear of you know the very influential mentors and academics in in one's background that that you know points you and sets you along a different path path and helps you to understand what's possible. You know, and I have a number of those people in in my background as well that I'm really appreciative towards. So this book for you is, is really close to home. Clearly it uh it built, I believe, out of your, your dissertation project. And um I was wondering if you could start our our discussion of the book by explaining a bit uh the title, which which really interests uh, me and particularly making the connection um of you know the importance of people and place in U.S. labor, Latino, and environmental history in in the space that you're talking about, because you really you're merging those three um, genres, if you will, academic genres and um, or literatures. And uh, so, can you speak a bit about you know the the place that that you're writing on and 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 how the the title really kind of encapsulates part of what you're doing? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I think part of what you know, makes the Northwest unique, right? It's sort of its kind of history as this environmental kind of uh, model, right? I mean, there's this, there's an environmental movement that, raises, that, that arises out of the Northwest um, that kind of sets the tone for the environmental movement across the country, uh, you know, emerging in the 70s. And so I think, to me, one of the that, that the environmental studies and environmental movement in general have... Um, sort of ignored for many years was race and labor, right? And, and part of the inspiration for this comes from 
an organization that was on campus at the University of Oregon called the Coalition Against Environmental Racism. Uh, and they held this annual conference every year on campus and really sort of introduced me to the idea of environmental racism. And it was something that I, that I started to see uh, very, that was very, uh, you know, prolific across the Northwest, right? Uh, and so I started to kind of thinking about, uh, you know, these spaces that I had previously sort of taken for granted, and I think most people take for granted, like the National Forest, right? As this, when we think of it as a preserve, we think of it as having always been there mm -hmm. uh, and having kind of naturally occurring phenomena. Um, but what I started to realize is now as I was looking at these different um, you know, communities in the Northwest was that um, the forest itself was a crop, right? And it was treated like a crop. Um, you know, it's thinned, it's planted, it's replanted, it's sprayed, it's harvested, it's all of these things. Um, and, you know, the labor that is normally associated with the forests tends to be this very white labor, this kind of lumberjack, sawmill, lumber mill kind of uh, image, right? Um, even in labor studies, we look at like, the IWW had a very strong foothold in the Northwest as this kind of very masculine white space. Uh, and the more I started thinking about the ways in which the forest is treated as a crop, I started saying, seeing that, well, really it's, you know, it's Mexicans that replant, it's Mexicans that thin, it's Mexicans that are spraying. They're, you know, and, and essentially they're doing the exact same work that they're doing in, you know, strawberries or in, 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 you know, onions or potatoes or whatever else. And so I really felt like this was a really kind of important thing to look at, especially because the audience for the kind of work that we do tends to be more narrow and trying to sort of take on this idea of, of environmental studies and environmental history and forcing people to kind of open up their lens a little bit, I thought was really, really important. I agree completely. When, and, I forget where it was. You, you make the point a number of times, and I think very early in the book, in, in the introduction perhaps, and then throughout, but uh, when you make the point that the forests were you know, a crop, just like you know any other kind of stoop labor crop that is so commonly associated with uh, Mexican labor history, um, you know, it really helped me to envision, as you say, in the forest and environment history very differently. I mean, you, you refer to the work of uh, William Cronin and Richard White uh, in the book of, you know, done you know, some great work in environmental history, particularly in the Northwest and in other parts of the country. It's, it's really shaped the direct environmental history, but um, your assertion and connection here, uh, and, and, and of course their input was is that naturally the the environment isn't just, you know, natural and, and, and um, you know, organically developed the way that we see it now. It's, of course, it's been shaped through thousands of years of human intervention, and so I always got that. But then again, your point of you know really that the the forests were uh, I don't know are a crop, and that the real real connection between the two is at least for you in this region is there was the same labor that was used uh, to both you know service and harvest, if you will, the forest as it was uh, the various fields and, and crops. Um, whether they be sugar beets or strawberries uh, throughout the Northwest, so that that's a very striking point for me, and uh, I appreciate that you bring out 
forward so clearly early on and and uh you know it's just made clear as your the rest of the book focuses on mexican labor and in particular uh, you know how they resist the structures that you've already referred to initially the structures that brought various populations and, and movements or migrations of ethnic mexicans to the region um and throughout. And and so the book starts with that. It starts with the Bracero program in the Pacific Northwest. And I wonder if you would speak a bit about uh, the Bracero program and how it, it functioned and what it looked like in the Northwest, because so much of, of what I've read has focused on the Southwest, and there's been a bit of work in, that I've talked about uh, Braceros in, in the Midwest and, and to a lesser extent to other parts uh, of the country. But mostly it's a Southwest kind of story narrative. Uh, so tell us what it was like in the Northwest. How did it uh, begin and how did it kind of develop? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, there's there's a very distinct sort of difference, right, in, in the very in the, in the various Bracero programs. Right? We tend to think of it as, like, one major program, um, but the different nuances in the laws that change make it for, make for a very different program at very different times. And so one of the things that I wanted to do was, I, I mean, obviously sort of going into this project, I was not somebody who was a fan of the Bracero program. I felt it was exploitative and problematic, and I still feel that way. But at the same time, when I began to interview uh, Braceros who were working in the Northwest at that particular moment in time, they talked about the exploitation for sure, but they talked about so many other things, right? And they talked about the resistance, and they talked about fighting, and they talked about how much fun they had. And that was something that was not squaring with the kind of traditional narrative that I had of the Bracero program. And so I started sort of thinking about, okay, why do they feel differently, right? And they, I even had interviews where people were like, yeah, I was in the program in Arizona and I hated it. And when I went to Oregon, it was different. And I was like, okay, well then what's different, right? What's happening here that that, that for them was, was, was different? Mm-hmm. And it's a number of different things, right? One is the distance, right? And like the ways in which the program operated at the time made, you know, the, the growers responsible for transport. And so it was very expensive to bring in Bracelos from the border all the way out to the Northwest uh, every time you had a labor problem, right? And so what ended up being cheaper for them was just to pay people more. And so, you know, the Bracelos would talk about, often talk about having an impromptu sit down and getting a, day, a raise and then going back to work. Right. And so I, I was like, I'd never heard this before. Right. It's not something that happened in California. It was not something that happened in Arizona. You know, and so to me, that was like this really valuable story to sort of think about that that place matters, right? That distance matters. Um, the other thing that happened that came up a lot because of place was the lack of a Mexican American community in the Northwest mm-hmm. made it. Uh, it made it easier and more difficult for them in a couple of ways, right? It made it more difficult for them because it was harder for them to sort of skip out on contracts and, uh, you know, find other alternative work um, that did that, that wouldn't exist in, uh, you know, that, that did exist in, like, let's say, Southern California, for instance. Um, but the lack of that also made them have a lot more interactions with Anglo communities that, uh, I don't think would have happened in other places. I don't think did happen in other places where there was this longer history of uh, sort of strict segregation that, that existed in, in California and Texas, for instance. Uh, and so one of the things that I found that was really interesting was that uh, even after they were out of the program or even after the Brasilia program was over, 
they kept coming back to the Northwest, which is exactly what my grandfather did. Mm-hmm. And he kept coming back because it was different from South Texas. It was just, it was uniformly different. You know, it was different from California. Uh, and this, this is not in any way trying to uh, minimize the suffering or the difficulty of, of a labor contract program. Um, but I wanted to give it some nuance, right? I wanted mm-hmm. to give people some, some voice and some and some agency in all of this and say, you know, they they came to the Northwest specifically because it wasn't the Brasero program in the South, right? And I think that's uh, a, a, a way of sort of just making this a little bit more uh, nuanced, right? It's like uh, the, there's a lot of doom and gloom in the kind of work that we do. And so, and to me, I felt like, you know, sure, there's not like, wholesale like organizing against the Bustetto program or, you know, union organizing in the fifties and sixties, but there's all these ways in which people are resisting and which people are making their lives better for themselves uh, as much as possible. Uh, And so I just wanted to kind of talk about those stories that I, that I've been told, you know, it's not something that I had any intention of coming to tell that story. Mm -hmm. I, my training had sort of thought that this was a terrible, you know, like the, the quote says, right, close to slavery uh, type of program. And the reality of it was is that while all those things were true, these men also found an incredible amount of joy and an incredible amount of freedom in what I thought was a very, very oppressive um, institution. Right, right. And so we have the the actual so the actual numbers of braceros are 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 lower, smaller clearly in the northwest than they were in, in the southwest. And um you mentioned the lack of, you know, established Mexican or ethnic Mexican communities um you know that were able to receive these braceros and and thereby that they, you know, they didn't have the opportunity as they did in the southwest to integrate into into those types of communities. So they essentially had to make their own. Uh and um but you also mentioned that wages were better in the Northwest, right? And also, uh, actually, forms of worker resistance, like uh, strikes, were, were more successful. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, they were more successful and more prevalent. Um, and again, I think it's, it has everything to do with the distance. I think it has everything to do uh, with the growers um, having a, a certain amount of restriction on them in the early years of the program. So I want to make sure that that's clarified, right? By the time that the war is over, the Northwest almost completely gets out of import to importing workers from Mexico. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it doesn't it, to them. It's no longer kind of uh, cost efficient. Or um, there's this really great quote that I, that I found in one of our newspapers where one of the farmers' wives is talking about how the longer they stay here, the more um, problematic they are, right? And so we need to recycle workers more often and even more, even faster than, um, you know, the program will allow. And so, you know, they get, they get out of it fairly quickly um, because these workers, the more they, the more, the more often they went on strike, uh, or I should say the first time they would go on strike, they then start to go on strike more and more often. Uh, and we would see it regularly. And then, you know, some of the stories that I tell in the book is, you know, a group of strikers will come in, a group of settlers will come in from another place in Idaho that they that they want a wage increase at, and they would strike at the new place that they showed up at and would win a, wa- a wage increase there. Um, and so, you know, there was there was this kind of radicalization 
that took place um, with Braceros in the Northwest that we don't really see in other places. Uh, and again, I think it has everything to do with the fact that, you know, they, they were far away from home. Uh, they were far away from, you know, any Mexican American community they could, they could, uh, you know, uh, sneak off to that they could bounce, they could skip out on their contract. Uh, and then there's also a very real kind of struggle between agribusiness and small business and small farmers in Oregon and Idaho and in Washington, you know, California from its inception has essentially been an agribusiness uh, state. You know, there's not the myth of a small farmer uh, just doesn't exist in, in California, but mm-hmm. it did in Oregon. And so, you know, the small, the, so the family farmers would actually provide an avenue of escape for some of the Brasados who were contracted through large agribusiness. Uh, so I think there was a number of different factors that, that really led, led to that. Um, you know, I talk about, uh, you know, small farmers who would hire people away that would pay enough wages for, for the fellows to be able to buy a car, right? Mm-hmm. So you had those who became essentially undocumented workers by skipping out on their contracts and, you know, going to work at various different farmers who weren't big enough to merit uh, importing workers from, from the Brasetto program. And so I'm not sure how much your listeners or how much you're familiar with that, but uh, essentially, you know, if, if I was a small farmer and I made a, a request to the Department of Labor for 10 Minnesotans, I would never, it would never get approved. Right. And so what farmers, they would get together in co-ops or uh, to, you know, order to, to, to make it, put an order in quote unquote for a hundred Brasetos or 200 Brasetos and those would be more likely to get approved. And so small farmers would essentially, you know, what they called, what they would call bootlegging workers away from uh, the large, the large agribusiness. And so that tension also created a, a, a space for maneuverability for, for Braceros. Exactly. You know, the, and the story is, is usually, you know, you get used to when, you know, you're, when I'm reading, you know, various histories of, of, um, you know, similar experiences, whether it's Braceros or, you know, Mexican labor in, in different parts of the country. There's always differences to degree and sometimes it's, you know, larger or smaller than others. But this was, this was a space where there are some, there are quite some substantial differences between how the Bracero program functioned in other parts of the country. And I found it incredibly interesting. You, you also bring up in this, um, Chapter the uh, another way of resistance uh, that Braceros uh, used was simply by you know claiming space and um, challenging social mores. Uh, can you speak on that for a little bit? Yeah, this is another thing that I thought was really really fascinating when I was doing the interviews, and not something at all that I expected to come across. Uh, and then you know once they pointed me to different things, I was able to corroborate a lot of the stories in newspaper articles and things like that. Um, but you know they they created this kind of social space, uh, you know, initially with sort of dances and, and going into town and, uh, you know, going, talking to, to women and, and these sort of uh, interrelation, interracial relationships that developed um, with some of the women in, in these small towns uh, was really, really fascinating to me. It was just something that I didn't expect to see at all. Um, and something that I think humanizes the settles because, again, I think the narrative of the Bracetto program at this point has become um, very, very dark. And and again, while those things most certainly existed, and I don't want to minimize them, I do want to say that that Braceros were people, right? And they were they were they were young men for the most part, and 
they were out there trying to create some kind of feeling of belonging, whether that was flirting or dancing or, uh, you know, creating, having, you know, uh, uh, patriotic holidays or uh, whatever different methods that, that you know that, that came up is it, it was something that happened and I wanted to kind of tell that story as a way of saying you know like it was you know it was an interesting kind of uh, moment because once you got them talking about you know some of the things that they did for fun their their faces would light up and they would tell these great stories and you're just like man this this there's something not driving here, right? Between kind of what I normally think and what what what's actually happening here. And eventually, I sort of came to this idea that, like, yeah, this is how they resisted, right? This is how they made, um, you know, some some joy, created some joy in their lives, and created a uh, you know a way of owning their own bodies and owning their own space. Uh, whether it was like dancing with white women or going dancing or swimming with them or or, you know, having a, 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 you know, a patriotic dance or whatever, raising the Mexican flag on one of the labor camps. So it was just this kind of way of claiming space that I hadn't heard about before. Certainly. And it, it was neat to see both in the social sphere and in the, you know, work and more uh, public sphere to see, you know, these various ways that these proceros were exercising their agency. And, and that certainly comes across very clearly. Um, you mentioned that, the so after the the war that the Bracero program essentially is is ended in the Northwest and and part of that is you know due to the fact that uh, a lot of the growers are kind of sick of of the Braceros in that uh, they've been successful in in uh, you know striking and, and challenging the wage structure and and it's it's become a bit uh, irrit- irritating for them um, but that that doesn't bring about an end to Mexican labor uh, in in fact what you say is that. Um, the Braceros uh, strike off a uh, migration stream, if you will, uh, of ethnic Mexican labor that, that continues after the war, uh, but from a different source. It, it comes uh, then after the war from Texas. And uh, so there's a, a part of the Tejano, di- Tejano uh, diaspora that uh, Mark Rodriguez also speaks about, but his, his diaspora goes, he's mostly speaking of uh, the Texas to Wisconsin Midwest connection. You identify another connection here to the Northwest. So can you talk a bit about how uh, this, this new um, migration of ethnic Mexicans after the war uh, differs from, you know, the Braceros and, and, um, how essentially they they begin to what what their expense what what are the experiences of Tejano migrants in Oregon and how they adjust to the the social and economic system there? Yeah, absolutely, yeah. I think this is this chapter is very much in the spirit of uh, Mark Rodriguez's book, um, in that we we identify basically the same factors, right? In the Bosano program, while it ends in Oregon, doesn't stop affecting Oregon, right? Because the settlers are are in a much much more dire situation. Mexico has a lot less leverage in the Bracero program than it did during the war. Uh, that state like Texas, which had previously been blacklisted from uh, importing Bracero because of their history of discrimination against Mexicans, is now, and now, is now allowed to import Mexicans uh, into, into the United States. Uh, and they start to sort of, uh, you know, push out uh, Mexican-Americans from various jobs in the fields in South Texas. And so that starts to push, uh, you know, Tejanos uh, further and further north uh, into the Cotton Belt and then finally into, like, the Midwest, Northeast, and, and the Pacific Northwest. Um, 
And so we're talking about very much the same migration and the same forces that are working in South Texas. Uh, and then when they get to Oregon and Washington and Idaho, uh, you know, again, um, I was sort of, when I first started writing the dissertation, I was looking for evidence of strikes and evidence of labor unrest and all these different things. And I really couldn't find anything. And, uh, again, I kind of like had a very sort of narrow vision of what it meant to resist uh, oppression when I first started writing this. And the more uh, Tejanos that I started to speak with and the more people that I started to interview, the more that I realized that they were challenging this kind of racial hierarchy in a very different way than I expected, right? This kind of labor, the way that labor is organized uh, in a very different way. And one of the stories that always sticks out in my head uh, is the fight that um, that Ninchaka um, gets into with the police officer at the, at the drive-in. And when he told me that story, I mean, my jaw was on the floor. Like, I couldn't believe it. Uh, you know, he's like, I was like, would you have been able to get away with that in Texas? And he's like, man, they would have lynched me in Texas. <laughs> right. So I was like, this is, this is fabulous, right? This is such a great story where, you know, he, he, he knows that it's a racist place, but he knows that it's less racist than South Texas. Right. And so, he exercises that kind of masculinity in a very different way than he would have in in Texas, and he found it incredibly liberating, right? Um, and that's not to say that again that that, that this is a uh, you know a racial utopia. There was you know the the Mercedes sisters would always talk about um, you know the kind of discrimination they felt in school, and you know the first time that they were called a stick, and like different things like that um, that obviously still exist in these rural communities. Um, but one where that isn't quite as dangerous, you know, and, uh, and they too, you know, were sort of expressing and, and claiming their space in very cultural ways through the dance halls. Um, and I felt like that was a really important story to tell, uh, as, as a way of kind of challenging the kind of traditional narrative of labor history where like there's this organization, you know, there's this oppression, they organize, they strike, and then usually they lose, right? And, like, things are all still terrible. And so, like, to me, I was like, well, this kind of story is a little bit different. I wanted to kind of break up that narrative of that kind of traditional labor history where, you know, there was no big strike with the Tejanos. There was no big uh, union movement with the Tejanos. Um, but there was, uh, you know, carnicerias and tortillerias and quinceañeras and bilingual radio and like there were all these things that came into the northwest in the 1950s that weren't there before and so there was a way in which this whole this whole area is transformed and mm -hmm. it's reshaped a completely different cultural space and i think one of the things that i love about this chapter is that the japanese are a huge part of that yeah yeah, that's something I was actually gonna gonna bring up. That I found that completely fascinating. Um, you know, the role of you know Nisi farmers and ranchers uh, in, if you will, aiding right Tejano uh, migrants to settle and and form community by um, you know allowing them to use some of their own uh, spaces and, and buildings. Can you speak just a little bit, uh, you know, about that? I mean, that that was just an amazing story. Yeah, I really, I mean, this, I grew up in this town now, and I didn't know this story, right? You know, it's, like, fascinating to me. And the more I started digging into it, the more, like, I found pictures of 19, 
you know, 1940s and 1950s, Ontario, Oregon, where an entire street is nothing but uh, Japanese businesses. Right. You know, and now it's completely foreign to me. I was like, why aren't people in Minidoka in this time? Why are, you know, like, how does, how do the Japanese are able to, how are they able to hang on to all these things? And so, you know, there was this, this is amazing story of this, this, you know, kind of community that embraces the Japanese. Um, and they had long history there. They had a long time there. They were far enough away from the, from the actual coast that now here County became a safe zone and had the largest number of free Japanese during the war of any other place in the United States. And, you know, we're talking about, like, there's two Buddhist temples in the Northwest, one in Seattle and one in Ontario, Oregon. Right. Right, which is a town, at that time, a town of about 7,000 people, right? And, you know, there's a huge Japanese temple, Buddhist temple there. There's a tofu factory there. There's all this kind of, uh, such a strong Japanese presence. And so after the war, uh, you know, the Japanese are facing uh, extreme, you know, still facing discrimination from other farmers and from other people in the community that they start to kind of find their own niche in growing, right? They can't grow potatoes. They can't break into the large grower co-ops and organizations that exist that are largely Anglo-dominated in the sugar beet industry, which is, you know, dominated by, you know, white satin and, uh, and um, oh, why am I forgetting the name of the company right now? But, you know, it's dominated by agribusiness. Mm-hmm. And then the potato industry is dominated by, uh, you know, white co-ops. And the Japanese, you know, get into onions. And onions at the time are a very niche crop. They don't sell, very, they don't sell great volumes. Um, and the Japanese begin to, you know, get into that. But what becomes really important for the Mexicans is that they not only get into the growing they start to open cooperative packing sheds, right? And so the packing sheds start to be start to provide um, year-round work for the Mexicans, or for the Tejanos in particular. Uh, and so the migration chain kind of stops there, right? And so you have the first kind of settled communities of Tejanos who are working uh, not only in the onions during the during the growing season, but they're working in packaging and processing sheds. Uh, during the winter winter months that allows them to stay around uh, year round, uh, and that really really sort of begins to be uh, you know the area the moment when when the Tejano starts to stop moving. Uh, the other kind of component to that is that the Japanese offer two things that are really valuable that Anglos don't offer. One, they start to rent to Mexicans, right? And so Mexicans no longer have to live in labor camps. Uh, they are able to rent property from uh, Japanese landholders. And then they also start to use, being able to use, utilize a space called the Japanese hall, which is where the Nisei would hold, you know, their kind of bazaars, their judo tournaments, their various different kind of cultural celebrations. And they would rent it out for quinceaneras. And they had a baseball diamond, which again, the baseball was very big with the Nisei. Um, and they started to rent the baseball diamonds out to Mexican uh, you know, different Mexican labor camps that would compete against each other in these families. Uh, so the Japanese play a really, really huge role uh, in in being able to make that transition for Mexicans from migrant community to a more permanent community. 
Yes. Now, again, it's a, a fascinating chapter and a really, I think, unique uh, example, particularly for the time period, you know, the post-war era. In um, a number of other studies, you know, there's there's often the point made about, uh, you know, intercultural or interethnic interactions, um, you know, with ethnic Mexican laborers and, and their families uh, with either Anglos or, you know, usually it's primarily Anglos in the, in the Southwest in regards to similar things, you know, using, you know, social spaces and, and, and their attempt to build community. But this one, again, I found was, was very unique and, and just fascinating. Um, so that brings us to really the, the, the middle chapters of the book. The first two focus on these initial two migrations, first the Braceros and, and then uh, the Tejanos. Uh, chapters three and four and really the, the rest of the book focuses more on the organizations uh, that emerged to uh, defend and organize Mexican laborers and their families in the region. And so the first of those you know, uh, groups or maybe massive uh, you know, widespread type of movements to do this uh, was the Willamette Valley Immigration Project. Uh, so we'll you discuss the the rise of uh, the WVIP and in particular um, uh, talk a little bit about its founders and, and influences um, you know where they kind of came from and what they brought uh, to the valley yeah I think this is kind of um, the moment where like the Chicano movement comes to the Northwest right and it comes to the Northwest through these three different people um, you know Ramon Rodriguez and Cipriano Ferrer are sort of the two big ones, right? Um, Cipriano is a really interesting story. He was born here, you know, just out of here in Delano. Uh, he's friends with the Chavez family. Uh, him and uh, Linda go to school together. They're in the same grade. Uh, you know, he's part of the initial uh, boycott uh, campaign in Detroit. Um, but for some reason, I think he just sort of felt, well, I know the reason, right? I mean, part of it is kind of like, uh, problems that are sort of happening in the UFW internally, and he sort of becomes disillusioned a little bit. Um, and it's something that he was very private about. He didn't really like to talk about a lot of the things that were happening within the UFW that, that pushed him out. Um, and it's something that even to this day, Bitcoin is sort of, you know, iffy on being, on being too upfront about. Um, but he comes to Oregon, he actually goes to the University of Oregon and enrolls at the University of Oregon, and he, uh, while he's down there, he discovers this place called Colegio Cesar Chavez, uh, which was this kind of experimental college in Mount Angel, Oregon, uh, whose motto was, uh, you know, college without walls. And so the idea was that you were going to give people a real life experience, you know, real life experience credit for that experience, while also, you know, learning some more kind of traditional liberal arts kind of uh, schooling. Um, with the idea that it was going to produce these kind of hybrid Chicanos, right? Like people who came from the community, but had professional skills um, and were able to kind of create whole-scale change, wholesale change uh, on a large scale. And, uh, you know, this kind of, um, you know, it's the first, you know, uh, you know, Chicano serving or Hispanic serving institution of the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, really sort of supposed to be this, um, you know, this really kind of amazing, transformative place. Um, so Cipriano drops out of the University of Oregon and goes and enrolls at Gregos and Chavez, where he meets this other guy, Ramon Ramirez, who's from East L.A., uh, who is very involved with, um, you know, organizations in East L.A., in particular, Casa uh, and Ber- Ber- Ramos Casa. 
uh, and he, you know, is part of the Chicano moratorium. Uh, he experiences, you know, firsthand the kind of police brutality and violence that is visited upon that community. Uh, his his um, his sister's uh, husband is deported. Uh, and so he has this kind of, you know, there's all these kind of things happening around him that he is very passionate about and very, you know, motivated to talk about and then move and then, you know, start a movement around. And so he goes to college at University of Washington and he does the same thing. He enrolls at UW. Uh, he hears about Colegios de Chavez. He takes a group of machistas down to Colegios de Chavez and he decides this is the place to be. I'm dropping out of UW. I'm going to. Uh, and so, oh, I'm sorry, it's not you, Doug. It's another, it's a, uh, I forget the name of the school. Uh, but he is it's in Washington. He decides to leave there and go to Colegio uh, de Chavez. And there, uh, you know, they meet up with a bunch of other uh, very prominent activists and other, uh, you know, people from AIM and people from the Puerto Rican nationalist organizations. Uh, he meets up with a guy named Raki Baria, who uh, you know becomes an important player in sort of the immigration law history later on. Uh, and they start to kind of hash out these like brainstorming sessions about you know what do we do, how do we fix this problem, and what's the biggest problem facing like Oregon right now. And they never say this explicitly, but in some ways, I feel like part of the reason that they choose Oregon or they decide to work in Oregon is because. They had seen some of the failures that had happened in the movement in other places mm-hmm. and wanted to recreate Oregon that was different, right? right. And so, you know, they were, they were very specifically from the very beginning pro-immigrant, right? And that's something that a lot of the organizations that they had worked with in the past were not. Um, and so they are, you know, and they have a very internationalist critique which some of the Chicano organizations that they came from did not have, right? Mm -hmm. Um, uh, You know, there's this very kind of purposeful, uh, you know, kind of outlining of a movement that was more progressive, that was more inclusive, that in some ways was more radical, uh, and they used this space as this kind of launching point. And, you know, there's this great Larry Larry Kleinman who is this, uh, uh, you know, young Jewish activist from Chicago who moves out to the Northwest, uh, to work for the National Lawyers Guild, which is again a progressive, you know, sort of legal, uh, community of legal um, professionals. You know, he comes out and he tells this great story about the first time that they decide to have like a meeting about, uh, you know, what to do about the INS. And so they go out and they like advertise this, and they're trying to get a bunch of people to come. And they go to the Colegio de Chavez, and nobody shows up. Like, no. Nobody showed up. He's like, not a single farm worker was there. And he's like, and, and that's when they're like, okay, we're doing this wrong, right? Mm-hmm. We're not doing this. We need to be in the communities. And so from the very beginning, I think there was this kind of very strong emphasis on who's the community, what do they need, and how are we going to get it to them, right? And it's, as opposed to being, you know, more philosophically driven or, you know what I mean, or more right. like uh, illogically driven, I guess is the word I'm looking for. Um, they are very much about responding to the needs of the community. And I think that's something that they've done for the last 40 years that has made them successful and, um, you know, long lasting. 
Certainly, yeah. You you bring out there's a number of things that I liked about uh, the discussion of the the WVIP, which eventually transitions to um, PECUN or the Pineros y Campesinos Unidos Noroeste, which is the organization that uh, takes up uh, chapters five and six. But the the two things that, I, that really interested me was the 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 things that they borrowed from their backgrounds, and and part of that really was a kind of study group collaborative atmosphere to, to try to brainstorm and figure out how to you know address the problems that uh, for the population that they're primarily concerned with which at this point is you mentioned immigrants and it's undocumented immigrants um, primarily and so they they initially make this effort to uh, defend um, undocumented ing- immigrants against uh, deportation proceedings you know there, there are raids that are occurring and they're being deported and so they come up with a really novel legal strategy using the fifth amendment uh, referring to the right to, to due process to and and uh, encouraging and teaching uh, undocumented immigrants not to self-incriminate they incriminate themselves that is uh, again really novel at the time but really focused again on on ways that they were trying to figure out how to help these people um, and then initially they, they transitioned to um, uh, more of a type of labor for, uh, focus, uh, while still, you know, the WVIP not yet transitioned to PECUN, uh, but focused on reforestation workers, which really creates that, that link that the title refers to of, of forests and fields and these two, um, you know, different, with seemingly different types of work, but that are very similar in, and again, in the way that you're using similar kinds of labor and there's similar processes in, in, and um, trying to produce these these various crops, and so there's the state again the study group atmosphere, but then there's a very keen focus on the community, and that seems to me something that you identify early on as a uh, again a distinction because you emphasize from chapters three and four on how these these organizations borrowed from their past and uh, a number of connections to the UFW but then and, and CASA, but then also how they were markedly different. And one of those was this determination to um, really keep close to the people, really community type of, you know, grassroots focus of making sure that they were pushing for and solving the needs of people and not an organization, which is something that we – uh, at least in a lot of the scholarship on the UFW, seems to be the disconnect. At least a lot of the scholarship in the UFW focuses from the top down. So at least on the top down, there there seems to be this focus to preserve the union and the movement at all costs. But uh, with the WVIP and with PECUN, uh, it's really this continually you know self reevaluative process where the organizers are are changing tactics and strategies and and really to making sure that they're they're keeping their organization on you know the beat of the the needs of the community right and i think that's I think that partly has to do with um the very different backgrounds of the very of the three different founders right it's like you have a very you know have somebody like larry who has a very legal mind right who's always sort of thinking about you know, different angles of the, of the law and how this can work and what might not be able to work. Um, and went early on was part was a big part of it as well. And she was obviously a lawyer and somebody who had that kind of mind as well. You know, uh, Ramon came from a much more like you know, urban experience, you know, this Chicano experience. And, you know, you see that later on with, um, you know, their, their decision to sort of take on the police as well. Uh, and then Cipriano with the UFW who has this kind of rural experience and saw the kind of downfalls or the the, the mistakes that the UFW made. Uh, and so I think there's this this amazing kind of energy and synergy that they're that they're all bringing very different perspectives. And in some ways, 
you know, uh, you know, sort of, I, I really wanted to focus on these, these three individuals, but there was a lot of people involved early on who came from these very different backgrounds. A lot of them who came from sort of these kind of disillusioned backgrounds of the movement in other places, uh, and, and saw in Piccolo or in the WVIP early on, uh, an opportunity to kind of correct those mistakes, you know? And so, you, you know, you, you, very early on, the WVIP is talking about imperialism, you know, and, and the way in which economic imperialism forces migration in the first place. And that's not a place that, like, let the USW had not gotten to that point. Right. At, at, at this time, you know? And so I think that's, and, it, and it's something that, that, that's persistent, you know, like, uh, I talk about it towards the end of the book, like, the main, the main, most of the organizers for the UFW now are indigenous women, right? And, exactly. And that's right. who's history and that's who you know you can't have a, you know a 60 year old um you know jewish guy coming into the nurseries to talk to a bunch of indigenous women it wouldn't work right and so they recognized that and said the movement wasn't larry and the movement wasn't ramon and they didn't say well we're going to have to go in there and organize these people now they said no we got to find people who can organize these people now right and i think that's what you know they their, their radio show was a great example of that and they have, you know, indigenous women on the radio speaking Tiki and Sapotec and different languages that are that make their jobs like, you know, so much easier. It's so much easier to organize that way. Uh, and they've just done a remarkable job of being flexible. And uh, I think, you know, when I first started thinking about the contributions that this book would make outside of the academy, uh, that was like the big thing for me, right? It was like people need to see how effective this group is and how mm-hmm. well they're working because of their ability to be flexible and to think about and be self-reflective as well and to think about who do we need to organize, who who has, uh, you know, and who can we get to, to, to increase our sort of organizational capacity to do this work. Right. And it's, uh, I had similar feelings when I was reading, um, when I was reading it as well, it, because for me, what um, what really hit home is the, the 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 amazing. It seems to me amazing because so much of the, the movement type scholarship has to deal with um, movements that evolve and in ways. Um, you know, it's it's addressing the issue of 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 declension and decline, and and how do you not how do you you show that. These movements and essentially didn't fail. So, uh, what I'm talking about, referring to initially, are, are bigger, broader movements, civil rights, social justice movements. The UFW is often, you know, pointed to in um, its early successes, and then say its latter failures. And in some way, it, it, it leads some to really question and evaluate. Well, you know, what did the what did the union itself, the UFW, I'm referring to here, or other similar movements, really accomplish? If in the end, we have workers, we have people in, in a very similar uh, situation. But what you know, your book shows is the, the influence that, um, and the experience that people who, who left the UFW and other types of social justice movements, you know, they went on and, you know, there's a number of other scholars that, that refer to this too. They went on into other organizations. And, you know, the WVIP and Pekun for me are just really clear examples of how they really took, um, the the you know the good of what they saw uh, would be beneficial from the previous organizing experience, and then you know tried you know went to a new space and really tried to make it work again. And with Pekun, I was just blown away to as you you know you close up the wo- the book to read about how strong and and powerful that organization is. Um, 
turning to the page here, but I think it's in the epilogue, you refer to a local politician in uh, Oregon who basically said that, that they don't do anything without first con- um, you know, running it by Pecun, right? Yeah, Andy Santos used to work for Governor Kitzhaber in, uh, in Oregon, and he was like the kind of Latino liaison guy. And when I interviewed him, he was like, yeah, we don't, we don't do anything. We don't breathe. We don't make a move without first thinking about how's the going to react to this. And I'm like, to me, that, yeah, it's like you said, I mean, that's like a, what other organization can people say that about? A Latino organization in particular, can people say that about now, right? I mean, like, the UFW is com- increasingly becoming relevant in the field and in politics, mm-hmm. you know, and so and that's not true of Pikun. Like, it's something that, you know, right now, Pikun is, um, uh, just got the minimum, you know, was big, big part of the coalition that got the minimum wage raised in uh, Oregon, you know, and, and so like that's gonna that's like a huge, huge boon to farm workers, right? I mean, when we think about the fight for fifteen, we're often thinking about restaurant workers. Mm-hmm. Um, people who benefit the most from a raise of minimum wage are farm workers, and so you know the you have the the the, the Pikun, I mean, uh, was a big part of that coalition that just got that passed in Oregon. Uh, and, you know, and so they're, you know, and they're, uh, you know, I, I, that, that story that I tell about um, the or the coalition between Bakun and the Basic Rights Oregon, mm-hmm. I think, is a really clear example of how Bakun uh, sees the struggle for immigrant rights in a much broader and a much more, uh, you know, kind of, um, in, you know, all-encompassing kind of. Uh, avenue or sort of all-encompassing lens that says, what are the other things that we can do to make the lives of farm workers better besides just winning contracts, right? Because mm-hmm. they have about, I want to say right now, probably about 6,500 people under contract, which is not a lot, right? But uh, they, there's other ways, right? There's other measurements that they use to like improve the lives of farm workers, right? Including uh, these these leadership training things that they have, right? Where uh, they train people to run for like school board offices, right? You know what I mean? Like it's an, it's an amazing organization, and I think you know I really wanted people to know about it, and I really wanted um, you know to to see the people to see the history and where it comes from and how it's uh, you know how a movement like this is built. You know what I mean? Certainly, and and yeah, no. There's so many lessons in here, and I think among the keys as to how a movement and a successful movement is is built, and particularly because the, the latter chapters of the book really focus on the late 20th century, and and that's where it's uh, I think the you know these recent questions and how to organize such diverse movements of particularly when we're, we're looking at you know workers now who you know you have a, you know the mixture of uh, the strong components of indigenous workers that come with you know various different you know backgrounds and cultures and, and, and dialects and so how are you inclusive to that type of population and not just build an organization that serves them but then that can build coalitions with other progressive and labor organizations uh, in in the region and again Pekun is just a, a striking example and I was reading again at the uh, the epilogue I mean talk about that the housing projects that they established uh, to create modern apartment uh, like complexes with amenities uh, child care, um, a number of things, you know, after school activities, it, it, it really is, um, 
you know, it was so inspiring for me to to read this and so hopeful, you know, as to again to to what's possible. And I uh, I agree uh, completely that uh, it it is a fascinating organization and it's tremendous that your book was able to you know tell a, a part of their story. We've only touched you know just the the surface, the, scratch the surface on on what your your chapters, latter chapters, really focus on. But it, it again, truly is you know a a history that can be learned from. Yeah, one of the things that I really like, like with that example you're talking about, it reminded me of something of, um, you know, the, the, the apartment complex. And, and when they first started as, as the WVIP, they, you know, they, they admitted to themselves that they didn't know much about what was happening. And so they conducted this survey um, about, you know, asking forest, reforestation workers, like, what are the biggest challenges? And, you know, are you getting paid on time? Like, are you getting sick from you know, the different pesticides and, you know, they really, from the very beginning, they, 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 they take that model from the UFW of like, you know, what, what do you need, right? Mm-hmm. You go to the community. Well, one of the great stories about you know, that, that farm worker housing uh, development corporation is they do the same thing then, right? 40 years later, they go to the, to the people who are living in those complexes and they say, what do you need? Right. And what do you want us to work on? And, you know, we often get these kind of ideas in our heads about, you know, like radical organizing and what it means to be a radical organizer and what it means to be a progressive. And we sort of lose uh, the forest for the trees and we lose, what we, you know, the kind of on the ground thing people need. The number one thing that came back and it was uh, uh, the survey that was specifically designed for women was uh, driver education. Right? Mm-hmm. right. And it's something that they had never like, not once they think of, you know what all farm worker women really need is they need driver's license and they need driver's, driver's ed courses, right? And that's not something that if you, you know, if you're not willing to like listen and you're not willing to ask questions, that's never going to be something that, you know, a 60 year old uh, Mexican dude is going to come up with, right? Like it's just not what he's going to come up with. And so the fact that they're able to like, you know, to, to, to not get into their own heads and ask these women what they wanted and they said driver's license, and then they started talking about why they wanted to be able to drive around, and it's this, you know, the politics of that is just amazing. Mm-hmm. And it's like, oh, wow. It's, you know, like, our own hubris would not have let us see that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that's that's right on, and I appreciate you sharing that example as well. And there's and there's a number of others. Um, so our our listeners, I strongly encourage them to get a you know a copy of the book. And it's uh, you know there's so many broad different applications that I could imagine for it. I mean, uh, of course, outside of the classroom, it's uh, you know nice and you know it's tightly written. It's um, you know but. but v- you know a number of things. I mean, both persuasively written um, as as a history that drives forth you know the, the theme of, of worker resistance, but then also I mean making these connections to the present and and how organizations uh, can succeed um, dealing with you know the very difficult circumstances of, of diverse populations, both the worker populations, but then working coalitioning uh, uh, through coalitions with, with other organizations that have similar goals, but, you know, can diverge in tactic, tactics. There's just a number of, of things and, and lessons that, that the book points to. Um, we do need to wrap up, but I wanted to also give you maybe a moment to speak about uh, what it is you're, you're working on now. This is, I know it's just off the press. And you're going to spend some time hopefully promoting and, and sharing the book and it's getting a lot of people to read it. Um, so, but uh, tell us a little bit on maybe what the next project is, or at least what's occupying your time now. 
Well, first I want to say that I appreciate you uh, talking about, you know, asking me on and, and talking about the book. And uh, I want to emphasize, you know, the point that you just brought up and that I tried to write the book in a style that made it accessible to the people that I was writing about. Mm-hmm. Right? And I thought, for me, that was a really big thing in coming into academia and, you know, not wanting to write something that was just totally, you know, irrelevant to the people who I'm writing about. And so everybody who I, you know, conducted an interview with, like something that I kept telling myself as I was writing the book, I was saying, okay, you know, I want to make sure that when they read this and they see their faces and they hear their names in the book and read their names in the book, that they understand what's happening and what's being said about them, right? I didn't want to write it in a language where, you know, my what was being said about them was hidden at all. And so I appreciate you uh, mentioning that. That's a, that was a big thing for me. Um, as far as what I'm working on now, um, you know, obviously, I'm, like you said, I'm doing you know, other promotions. I'm going to give a couple of talks and, you know, want, you know, go around the country to talk about the book. But the next book project is sort of similar. I'm working on uh, farm worker communities here in the Central Valley. Uh, in particular, I'm writing about a group called the Westland Water District, uh, which is one of the largest irrigation districts, is the largest irrigation district in the, in the country. It's uh, 600,000 acres owned by just a handful of agribusinesses. Uh, and I'm writing about the farm workers who live in these communities, uh, which are, uh, for the most part, unincorporated communities. And so I've been working closely with some activists uh, here in, uh, in Central Valley uh, who are living and working in these communities, uh, specifically uh, around access to water, right. uh, clean water, Michigan, uh, access to, you know, um, you know, they're, they're, they're paying like exorbitant amount of money uh, for their water bills every month, even though their water is essentially unusable. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what makes it more uh, tragic is that this is water that is essentially paid for uh, by federal tax monies uh, that, um, you know, for to essentially bring it down from the Delta through canals into the, into the Western Western's water district. That is then that they get from basically pennies on the gallon, which they then charge, you know, ten, twelve dollars a gallon for usage uh, for these poor communities that are unincorporated. So they don't get water from the city. They don't get water from the county. They have to pay a private organization for water that is gets their water from federally subsidized sources. And so I'm really trying to write the kind of history of this large agribusiness organization uh, and also the lives of the farm workers uh, who, who live in this area. Uh, and so this goes all the way back. The, 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 the group was founded in the 1950s, started to get federal water in the 1950s and, you know, sort of talking about some of the struggles against this large agribusiness group, um, including, uh, interestingly, uh, a progressive wider organization called the National Land for People. Uh, I shouldn't say wider, it's actually very multiracial, uh, but um, the National Land for People tried to force the federal government to uh, break up these large land holdings in the Lessons Water Districts uh, based on the 1902 Reclamation Act. And so mm-hmm. what the 1902 Reclamation was that if you were getting subsidized water from the federal government, uh, you had you couldn't receive, you couldn't have a land... Uh, larger than 160 acres. Mm. And so that was on the books until the 1980s. 
And so the National Land for People tried to, uh, and successfully sued the federal government, or sued the uh, Western Water District to try to break up these um, large parcels of, li- of land. Uh, and so that's what I'm writing about now. It's a very complicated story. It's a very long story. Uh, but there's also connections to the UFW here. There was a, a couple named Jesse and Arnold de la Cruz who uh, tried to essentially start their own kind of farmers cooperative movement here with farm workers. And so I'm telling a little bit of that story as well. Uh, and so, yeah, I mean, I'm very committed to writing about the places that I live. And I think this is the next kind of uh, the next project. That's awesome. That is so important. And it's just, it is, if you're, you're, you're discussing, it's insane to think of what these large, um, you know, corporations and, co- and, uh, co-ops are allowed to do with federal water. I mean, whether it's, you know, a corporation like Nestle over in the Midwest that, uh, essentially gets federal water almost for free and then bottles it and charges it for exorbitant rates, right? Uh, amidst the, the Flint water crisis or in other issues. Um, but I mean, really just the issue of, of, you know, community access and, you know, small farmers access to, to, to water is so huge. I think even in the, uh, L.A. Times recently, I, I read about these big growers that keep drilling, you know, deeper wells that are essentially sucking all the water out of small communities uh, because they're 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 able to get underneath the the water table, if you will, of uh, of these smaller wells and, and aquifers and and literally, I mean, just drain these communities dry. So it's 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 shocking and it's a really important work. I'm glad to hear that you're working on that, and I totally agree with your emphasis on and focus on writing history where you are. Yeah, that LA Times article is exactly about the Western Water Water District, the one that you're talking about. Wow. Um, so that that is what I'm writing about, and I'll be presenting the, the first kind of iteration of that at uh, AHAPCB in Hawaii this summer, and uh, hopefully uh, some more in, the, in next year at uh, AHA and at LAH. We'll see if it get, gets accepted or not. Um, but yeah, that's kind of that's where the project's going. And, uh, there's so much. I mean, the water stuff is so huge right now, and uh, you know, there's so much that I'm having to learn and read and uh, about in terms of, you know, reclamation law and, you know, water law. And like you said, you know, there are, there are no laws to, to govern uh, drilling for water. So like you said, it's, uh, whoever has the most money and whoever sinks the deepest well gets to have it. Insane. Well, I'm glad. I'm going to be at the ACA. Why can I not speak right now? ACA PCB as well in Hawaii. So I'll be looking forward to seeing your presentation. And uh, again, Mario, thanks so much for coming on New Books and Latino Studies. It's It's been loads of fun and just great to talk to you about your important work. Yeah, I appreciate you having me on. And I, I've listened to some of the ones in the past, and there's some really great books. So I, I appreciate being uh, put in that company. <laughs> Certainly. Definitely. Well, thanks again.